This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Heidi Grant Halverson, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Heidi Grant Halverson. I'm a social psychologist. I study motivation, and I'm currently the associate director of the Motivation Science Center at the Columbia University Business School. And I should add, the author or co-author of an awesome new book, Focus. You, you, <laughs> can't forget that. Yeah, can't can't forget that. It's <laughs> it's kind of why we're here. I know. <laughs> um, true. Yes, I'm now that you have a new book. Um, it's called Focus. Use different ways of seeing the world for success and influence, and that just came out. And it's about uh, how we all don't think about our goals the same way, and how the differences in how we think about our goals affect sort of everything about how we try to reach them. And, and I have to tell you, it, it is, you know, it's a business book first and foremost, but really actually it's explained a lot about the inner workings of my family and, and my <laughs> marriage to some extent, et cetera, because it, it all stems from this idea that there are basically two different uh, motivational focuses, two different ways of kind of seeing opportunities for success um, mm-hmm. and two different ways that we're influenced. Talk, talk a little about those two different ways, uh, sure. how they differ. Well, yeah, it, it, they really, the whole, the research that this book is based on, and now there's about 20 or so years of it, not only from uh, coming out of the Motivation Science Center, but now from labs really all over the world. The idea is, is basically that even though we all want good things to happen and we all want to avoid bad things happening, we think about those good things and bad things in, in slightly different ways. And, and, and we all do both use, you know, both of these kinds of, of motivation, but we also tend to have a dominant one. And it really shapes our personality in profound ways. So the first way we call a, a promotion focus, and that's when you're thinking about whatever it is you're doing, the goal that you have, whether it's getting ahead at work or having a healthy relationship, uh, as an opportunity to gain something. Right? You're thinking about, you know, all the great things will happen if you, if, that will happen if you succeed, all the ways you'll end up better off, how you'll advance, how you'll sort of live up to your ideals, what you would ideally like to be or to become. Um, and when you're promotion-focused, uh, that kind of motivation, when you think about your goals that way, feels sort of like eagerness, right? Like you just sort of can't wait to get out there and do something and make it happen. Um, we find when people are promotion-focused, they have certain strengths. Uh, they're more creative. They're more innovative. They're much more comfortable with taking chances, taking risks. Uh, they're much more comfortable sort of thinking outside the box. They, they work more quickly. Um, and uh, and they're really great at, at sort of spotting opportunities for you know if you're if you're an entrepreneur sort of spotting that 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 problem that you can solve in some unique way and really end up with the with the big payoff and that's what when you're promotion focused you're really looking for you know you're looking for the big win uh, the other kind of motivation that we all have is sometimes we're looking at our goals not in terms of how we can end up better off but how we can avoid end up ending up worse off, right? How we can hang on to what we've already got and stay safe and secure uh, and, and, you know, and keep things running smoothly. And we call that prevention focus. Uh, when you're prevention focused, 
you have a, a very different set of strengths, right? You're much more tuned into uh, the importance of being accurate and thorough because you don't want to make any mistakes, right? You don't want to do anything that's going to land you in hot water if you want to keep things running smoothly. So, so you're a great planner because you tend to be more likely to think through all the things that might go wrong and, and how you can kind of get around those problems. Your motivation feels more like vigilance, right? Like you're trying to, to make sure nothing bad happens. Uh, and because of that, you tend to be very sensitive to potential pitfalls, very good at avoiding those pitfalls. Um, you're, you're, very, you're much more reliable, and you're great at maintaining the things you, you've already gained. So, you know, while the promotion-focused person in a sales office may be the one who's really great at coming up with new leads, it's usually the prevention-focused person in that sales office who's really tuned into the importance of maintaining the relationships you already have. So it's, a, it's two very different kinds of motivation, two very different kinds of strengths. Um, and, and because of their very different kinds of motivation, that one of the most important things to understand about it is that they, they really will, uh, you'll have different things that work for you, that engage you, that make you effective. So for, for the, I think the most obvious example, I talk a lot about in the book is that for promotion-focused people or when you're promotion-focused, optimism is really important. Optimism is really motivating. You know, believing that you can succeed and everything is going to work out great, that really gets your juices flowing. But prevention-focused people don't like optimism. Because optimism actually diminishes their motivation because their motivation is about vigilance, right, making sure nothing will go wrong. And if you're too optimistic, you're going to relax too much. And so you're going to maybe get a little sloppy and you're going to make mistakes. And that's exactly what you don't want to do when you're prevention-focused. So prevention-focused people are actually more like a defensive pessimist. It's not that they believe that they're going to fail, but they believe they might fail if they don't take all the steps they need to take in order to avoid mistakes and make sure they succeed. So you have very different ways of working. And, it's, you know, whenever I talk about this stuff, immediately people begin to sort of mentally figure out, okay, I'm clearly that more that one, right? I'm more the promotion-focused person. I'm, I'm more the prevention-focused person. Uh, or my colleague, oh, he's definitely prevention-focused. And, and, of course, you can have different focuses in different areas of your life. So you could be someone who, say, really promotion-focused at work, but very prevention-focused when it comes to, you know, your personal life. Um, and so, we, so, we, so we, we sometimes, we usually do have some kind of dominant focus. And I think part of, a big part of why we wanted to write the book was to help people understand their own form of motivation, their dominant form of motivation, and how to kind of work with that to be as effective as possible. Now, it, it's interesting that one of the examples you used was two different types of salespeople who might have those two different uh, focuses. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, is there any research on people with a different uh, dominant motivation are drawn to different positions within an organization because I can kind of, as I sort of am thinking through it and reading about it, all that sort of stuff, I'm starting to think like I, I my day job is as a professor and I could, it feels mm -hmm. like a lot of the promotion focused people, a lot of the optimists, they're drawn to things like marketing. They're drawn to things like sales, the prevention focused or my accounting students, that, that kind right. of thing. I wonder if there, is there any research there or there is, there is actually some that suggests that, that promotion focused people gravitate toward um, what are called um, art, artistic or, or unconventional jobs. So, so things that involve um, kind of where, where there's a sort of a premium on outside-the-box thinking. So consultants, 
um, at people in things like marketing, right? Think people in the arts, um, whether that's it's um, you know drawing or painting or advertising or writing, um, you know, pe- people who 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 really flourish in. And and another thing we find is that actually um, CEOs are more effective when they're in an industry and they're promotion-focused and they're in industri- industries that are very volatile, right? They're really good at navigating sort of a constantly changing landscape, right, because they're comfortable with risk, they're comfortable with change. Prevention-focused people tend to, as you as you sort of thinking about it, you know, intuited, that they're more drawn to what we call conventional and realistic positions. So they, they are the accountants. They're the engineers. Um, they're the people who are really good at, at sort of crossing T's and dotting I's. And as CEOs, they're very good and perform best in industries where there's a lot of stability. You know, an industry like, say, you know, if you're in uh, the head of Coca-Cola, where, you know, your competitors have been the same competitors for decades, not much has changed about the way you make soda, you know, or or distribute it um, or advertise it. So when your industry is very stable, actually, people who are good at keeping things running are really the best ones to have in charge. But I think one of the, the most important things Another really important, certainly, lesson from the book is, is how, how necessary both these kinds of motivation are for success. I think in, in America, we, in particular, uh, America is a very promotion-focused place. Um, our, 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 you know, the American dream is very promotion-focused, right? It's the image of the person who sort of starts out from nothing and takes lots of risks and, and, and then, and, you know, really makes it happen big. Um, you know, that, that anyone can become anything and anyone can become a superstar. That kind of thinking is very promotion-focused, right? It's all about how can I end up better off? How can I, how can I gain? How can I advance? Um, not every culture is like that. Some cultures are more prevention-focused, like in East Asia, where the, the emphasis on, is much more on harmony and keeping things running smoothly. But because Americans are so promotion-focused and in, in, in the, in the culture is very promotion-focused, I think there's a tendency, you can kind of see it in who we revere when we look at, um, you know, at CEOs. You know, it's the, it's, the, it's the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates and the people that we look at and we say that person was a creative genius or that person was a risk-taker. And we tend not to praise the prevention-focused people who are really kind of keeping it all together. You know, they're making sure that nothing horrible happens, that, you know, that, you're, that, that your airplane runs the way it's supposed to and doesn't fall out of the sky and, and that your, you know, your coffee actually is, is decaf. And, and, you know, all the little things that kind of keep life, you know, working. Um, the the prevention-focused person is often the unsung hero. And so we, I think, disproportionately admire, even though, I mean, they're, of course, they're really important qualities, but we disproportionately praise creativity and innovation and risk-taking, and we tend to not appreciate so much accuracy and reliability and, and, and excellent planning. But really, every organization needs both, you know, and you can immediately see when an organization is lacking in one of these things, how, in, in either promotion or prevention, how disastrous it can be. Oh, I think I think you're totally right. And, and as, as I was reading the book, I started catching in, in my mind parallels. My mind went back to Hofstede and the cultural dimensions and what countries would be more risk takers. Mm-hmm. You definitely see it in America. My my idea of it is Fast Company Inc. Those are the sort of the hot magazines now, and even Forbes. Right. We're talking about Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk. I. I honestly could not even tell you who the CEO of Coca-Cola is, which probably right. hints at my <laughs> motivational track. But also culturally, as America as a whole, you know, we don't we don't know that. You know, it's we don't not pay exciting, right. right? It's not right. Yeah. So, so I guess uh, whether it's whether it's different people in different departments in an organization, or even um, different people in the same department who are drawn to the same job that have those differing 
uh, motivational focuses, how do we get them uh, to work best together? How, well, first, how do we get them to realize that the there's a difference here, and then how do yeah. we get people to start speaking each other's language? Well, I, the, part of part of the um, I, again, I think that that it is it's very much a double edged sword. That that my recommendation to people is always look, you have to have in your organization on your team both promotion and prevention minded people if you want to actually be able to cover all the bases that you need to cover. That said, a team made up of promotion and prevention minded people is going to have conflict, right? Because not, ultimately, not because they don't have the same goal. They do, but they see it very differently, right? And so when you talk about the importance of, you know, everybody has the goal on a sales team, for example, everybody has the goal of, of hitting their quotas. But they'll, they'll think about the, the, what the priorities are for hitting quotas, what you need to do to hit quotas very differently. Like I said, the promotion-focused person is going to be looking for new ways to get new leads or to do new things. The prevention-focused person is going to be saying, hang on, you know, we need to actually make sure that what we have always done and what we have already done, that continues to work smoothly. And neither one of them is wrong, right? So, so, so one of the, one of the things I, really hope that comes out of people finding the book and, and reading it and, and hearing about this difference is that really simply having, and we know this from lots of psychological research, simply having a language to talk about our differences can be incredibly helpful because, you know, before that moment where you understand promotion and prevention, you know, and you're having this argument with your with your coworker. To you, it's just this person is being unreasonable. This person is being a stick in the mud. This person is being reckless. You know, this person is just essentially being a pain, right? And 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 that's how you're thinking of them. And then suddenly, when you have this language, you can go, Oh, I understand. Bob is being very prevention focused about this, where I'm being more promotion focused. Now, it's hard to get to compromise from stick in the mud and you know reckless and these terms that are kind of negative, where we with it. We hurl at each other, and we do this in our marriages too. <laughs> you know, any partnership you have this, um, but it's much easier to get to compromise from promotion and prevention, and saying, okay, I, I think you're seeing this in more of a prevention way. I'm seeing it in more of a promotion way because that's, there's no judgment there. And in fact, actually, it, it immediately then makes it clear what each person is bringing to the table. Right, that one person is bringing accuracy and awareness of potential pitfalls, and that's really valuable. And the other person is bringing creativity and innovation and sort of an eye towards seizing new opportunities, and that's really valuable. And so, it, so we, we find that when people actually have this language to talk to each other in, um, they, can, they can much more easily say, okay, well, how about something like this, right? Like how about a compromise here, and this sort of takes con concern with, you know, your concerns, and it takes care of mine, and they get there more easily. Now, the other thing that's true is that if you want to be really persuasive with a coworker and this is just from your own vantage point, you're trying to persuade your coworker to get on board with what you want to do. We have a, a, the, the, the first half of the book really describes promotion and prevention in all these areas in your life. The second half is really about how to influence other people depending on their focus. And one of the things we talk about there that's really important is to try to learn to speak the other person's motivational language. So, for example, if you have, and this happens all the time to people, you're relatively promotion-focused, your boss is relatively prevention-focused. And, and, and the reason it happens in that direction often is because responsibility makes people more prevention-focused. So the more responsible people are, the more they tend to be cautious and not want to make mistakes. So you have this boss who's prevention-focused. You have this 
great idea for an innovation that you think is, is, is amazing. And what you would normally do is you would go into your boss and you would describe it in the way that makes sense to you to describe it, which is in terms of all the things you'll gain, all the ways you'll end up better off if you take this risk, right, and you innovate in this particular way. That is not going to be persuasive to somebody who's prevention-focused. They don't care, right? They don't care about that because all they're seeing is the risk. If instead you make the same exact pitch, but instead of talking about it as here's what we'll gain, you can say, look, you know, it would be a mistake not to innovate in this particular way. If we don't innovate, we could end up losing market share. If we don't innovate, we could end up trailing all of our competitors. So both of those, you know, either way of describing it is true. But but the second way of describing it as a way to avoid an error, right, as a way to avoid loss, that's motivationally what fits for a person who's prevention-focused. And now they've got, you know, you have their undivided attention. Oh, wait, doing this actually will save me problems down the road? That sounds fantastic. Right? So, so, so a lot of being persuasive is just tuning, and it's often just very subtle shifts in language, your, your pitch whether it's pitching a product or, or you know, pitching an idea um, or trying to persuade someone to do something, even if it's, you know, persuading your teenager to, to do their, you know, their laundry. If you can switch your, mot- your, your motivational language to match them, there's many, many studies now showing that you, uh, you appear more trustworthy, more believable. People find the message more persuasive. People spend more money on the same product when it's described in a way that matches their motivation. And people report being more satisfied. I mean, this is the best part. You know, if they were just spending more money, I'd feel a little guilty. But the truth is they actually also subsequently then report enjoying the product more. They're more satisfied. So they actually find whatever it is you're selling, whether it's an idea or, or an actual, you know, a product of some kind, uh, to be more valuable. So, so you know, the, the, this is a long answer, but the shorter answer is we need to actually teach people what promotion and prevention are. I think people get it very quickly is the good news. I mean, this isn't some complicated system where there are, you know, many quadrants you can fit into. Uh, you know, it's promotion and prevention. As soon as you describe it, people go, oh, yeah, I know what both of those things feel like. And, and then once they understand that, then suddenly it's very the, the behavior of other people is very eye-opening. I just wanted to say, because you, you had mentioned, David, before when we were talking about and I think he's mentioned just now about how it, it's, it's eye-opening about, you know, families and, and how we relate to one another. Every time I give a talk on, on promotion and prevention to a group of managers, I end up at the end, you know, you get this, like, line of people who want to talk to you about things, and every single one of them wants to talk about their spouse hmm. and how it was, you know, like, oh, now I understand why I've been, you know, trying to convince my husband to do this, and now I understand how I've been going about it the wrong way. Because it's not uncommon, actually, for husbands and wives to take sort of slightly opposite uh, a motivational focuses with respect to, to marriage, things in the home. So, yeah, it, it yeah. really explains a lot. Uh, <laughs> opposites attract, right? No, it actually – is, And this, to me, it, 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 one of the signs of a, of a really good read uh, beyond being really evidence-based, which focus is, is that when you read it, you remember conversations you've had and you begin to regret how you did them, like how you played it. And so whether it's, whether it's, it's conversations with my wife, with prior bosses, with mm-hmm. um, people on a team with me, uh, you, you start to think of conversations that you're like, oh, that explains why that went south so quickly and yeah. I should have done this. But, and, and let me ask you this because I, I love the idea that 
it's not that one person cuz when you read the book you begin to realize which one you are even even mm-hmm. people listening now probably already know 15 right. minutes in that which one they are and it's a big shift it's a, it's a a mental leap to go from realizing that they don't the other people don't see the world wrong they see it differently and we need both yeah. of those perspectives but in a short period of time say i'm a, a manager who's hiring or i'm a senior leader who's building a special team mm-hmm. and i need to know how i get people people of those two different um, perspectives on a team, how, how in a shorter period of time can I tell what a potential a team member or potential subordinate would be? Oh, it, this is a great question. So, you know, you haven't had a lot of time to get to know them yet. You want to just sort of uh, – usually what I what I um, tell people to do, you can ask a couple of kinds of questions that are really revealing. One of them is uh, the sort of the where do you see yourself in five years question, because if somebody is promotion-focused, um, they're going to give you a question, that, an answer that is really optimistic, you know, that is really sort of like here it, here's the best-case scenario. If everything goes beautifully, it's maybe possible possible that I'll be this in five years. That's the answer they're going to give you, except they're not going to say it that way. They're going to just say, oh, in five years, I'll be doing X. And you think, wow, okay, someone's, you know, pretty optimistic about this. Uh, a prevention-focused person is going to give a much more conservative answer. In fact, they tend to actually, uh, when, when it's sort of extrapolating into the future, prevention-focused people are very uncomfortable saying, oh, I'm, going to, I'm certain that I'm going to be very successful. So they tend to be much more hedgy. Well, under you know, if everything goes according to plan, and if you know, and I hope to be able to, it'll sound much more. There'll be a lot more sort of humility in it because they, they, they actually realize. I mean, in fact, this is this is strategically very smart for them. Prevention-focused people, when they project too much success in their future, they relax. And when they relax, they don't perform as well. So they actually operate most effectively when they're kind of constantly thinking about how everything could go to hell in a handcart. And then, and then, and then, and that sort of, I mean, it doesn't sound fun, but it's actually just really effective if you're prevention focused to think in that way. The other one that I think is a really telling question is to ask someone about their greatest regrets because you will get very different answers. Promotion focused people regret the opportunities that they did not seize, right? They, opportun- they regret the, the risks they failed, they didn't take. They should have taken, they should have done something that, that could have won big, you know, I could have been a contender. The uh, prevention-focused people regret mistakes that they have made. A, a, a mis- it's something they felt they should have seen coming and didn't avoid successfully. So those are questions that you can just kind of conversationally talk to, to people and, say, and bring up the subject of, you know, the future or bring up the subject of past regrets, and you'll get very, very different answers because they're just tuned in to very different kinds of successes and failures. Um, for, for a promotion-focused person, the worst failure is the, is the opportunity not taken. And for a prevention-focused person, the worst failure is the, mis- the mistake you failed to stop before it happened. You know, that, that's funny because there's that cliche about uh, five years from now you'll regret the opportunities you didn't take more than the things you did take. And, I, and that's – it's cliche. It's corny. Always mm-hmm. resonate, It always resonated with me. And it's funny to think that there are people out there that when they hear that go, yeah, no, that's, that's – Yeah, they, I don't no, that's that. not – right. <laughs> and they say, not, that's, not, that's, not, that's not what I'll regret. What are you, crazy? You know, and they, and they really – you know, the, you ever, if you've ever worked with somebody and when you tell them they're worried about something and then you say, you know, you're going to do great. And, and they look – like 
they want to just get away from you. You know, like they, they actually, they look like they're just fighting the urge to put their hands up over their ears because it's so, they're so uncomfortable with that kind of sort of generic optimism that so many of us sort of walk around with all the time. And it's because to them, that is reckless and naive thinking. And that's the kind of thinking that if they engage in, they think they're going to fail. Um, so, so you really get these, you know, and I think it is so important because our, so often as managers, as leaders, our intuitions about what's going to be helpful to somebody else are wrong half the time because we always intuit sort of what would work for us. You know, and so if you're a promotion-focused person, you think that cheering somebody up and telling them how confident you are they're going to succeed is what's helpful. And it is if that person's promotion-focused too, but it's not if they're prevention-focused, right? So, so our intuitions about how to motivate people and how to be good leaders are going to be, you know, fall short a significant chunk of the time because we don't realize there's this whole other way to be motivated. Hmm. No, it, it makes a lot of sense. And as I said earlier, one of the, the keys to why I know that people will pick up this book, will enjoy it is, is one, it's, it's well-researched and two, you will, you will remember things, conversations you've had uh, that, that you've regretted. And hopefully when you read the book, when you read focus, you can begin to have more productive conversations with people of the alternative motivational uh, persuasion. Uh, I want want to shift a bit from the book uh, to you and ask you a couple Mm -hmm. questions. Uh, what What are you reading right now? Oh, I am actually in the process of reading a ton of books because I'm doing I'm doing a kind of an, an interview series uh, with with psychologists who are all um, you know authors and uh, and so I've been reading uh, Mastermind by Maria Konnikova. It's it's called How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. She's a brilliant writer and she's um, she's basically someone who's inspired a lot of her research is inspired by literature and so she she kind of takes apart the way that Sherlock Holmes thinks and talks about it in the context of how research now shows, you know, what are great ways to make decisions, what are great ways to reason through problems. Uh, So I've been reading that. I have just finished a new book that's coming out um, next year called Confidence, about, uh, which is by, oh, I always forget his name, Tomas um, Chamaro Pramuzic, who is is an expert on personality assessment in business. And it's a brilliant book about how our ideas about confidence are so misguided that, that often we think we've now come to this point where we're being told we should act confident all the time and the thing to be is confident regardless sort of of how competent you are. And he talks about sort of how, how that actually can get you into a lot of trouble um, and, and, and actually end up being, you know, that we should all be a little bit more comfortable with the possibility of having low confidence because when you feel your confidence is low, it tells you you need to do something, right? It tells you, like, okay, I need to, I need to educate myself more here. I need, I need skills. I need training. I need more confidence. And all this running around, all of us trying to act like we know everything that we're doing and we think that's making a good impression and it isn't necessarily. So, so those are two of the books I'm reading right now. Um, I also just finished... Oh, what was the other one? I just I've read so many books. Oh, I just finished um, Adam Alter's book, Drunk Tank Pink, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. It's a great book for people who are um, marketers, but also just a great book for people who wonder why we do some of the weird things we do. Um, and it's all about this. Uh, it, the, the title of the book comes from this finding that there's uh, there's a particular shade of pink that when you paint the walls with it, um, the the 
people, the guys that were thrown into the drunk tank, you know, the, the guys that would sort of get a little drunk at night and they were thrown into jail cells, they were much more docile. Uh, when the walls were painted pink than they were when they were painted other colors. And there was all of these studies showing that when you show men in particular pink, and when they're around pink, they they are less aggressive and less hostile. And so it spawned all this interest in, you know, how we're affected by colors. The book is about, you know, how we're affected by things in our situations. Um, you know, the color of the walls, the, the culture that we're in, the, um, the kind of images we're looking at, even things like, uh, you know, that how we're affected by other people's names and sort of how fluent or easy to pronounce they are and how that hasn't actually, in some instances, won people elections because their names were easier to pronounce than other people's. Um, so that's another fascinating book. It's wonderful to actually see in general that there's so many um, it's really a great time for people who are interested in scientific psychology that, you know, not not so much the traditional kind of self-help, but the stuff that's really research-based and and, um, and data-driven. And, and so I think, you know, a lot, uh, a lot more trustworthy, frankly. Um, there's a lot of that coming out now and, and hitting, hitting bookstores now. And, uh, and so I think there's a real opportunity for people to start taking, to take advantage of, you know, 40, 50 years worth of research um, that really will help people to live better lives. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. You know, our, our site and our podcast is focused on the, the areas of leadership, innovation, and, and strategy, and all of those things from an evidence-based perspective. And it's a we, – we got started just before this kind of era of evidence-based management is really coming to its own, and it's an exciting time for uh, for getting an evidence-based perspective on, on really anything, which is which is wonderful. Now, Yeah, because I, I, I think, I think both in management and just in psychology in general, you know, when it comes to people, you know, some things can seem so intuitively right that turn out to be completely wrong. And and I so I'm so excited to see so much of that kind of thinking of like, no, actually we need to you know, intuitions are great, but let's make sure that our intuitions match map up with the evidence that we have and 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 sometimes the, the the ways in which they don't match up are are surprising and really enlighten enlightening so um it's a very cool thing to see yeah no absolutely Com- common sense is not only not common half the time it's not accurate <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> so now so the book has been out for a little while it's it's uh hopefully doing fantastic because mm-hmm. it is fantastic but Thank what you. what are you looking at down the road what's next for you um, you know, uh, the, 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 hopefully more books. I love writing. This is my third book now. I wrote a book called Succeed, which is about reaching goals, and then I wrote a, a short book for um, Harvard Business Press called Nine Things Successful People Do Differently, which is sort of a condensed version of Succeed, sort of a handier and like, Reader's Digest version of, you know, what are the most effective strategies for setting goals. In general, I'm interested in, in, in you know, how people set goals, how to reach them, how to motivate yourself and others. Um, and so then I'm, I'm thinking about the next book. It's probably going to be something, another area that's really fascinating for me is the difference between how we see ourselves and how we think other people see us. And um, that's really a, a really large area in psychology. It's been an area that's been studied a lot for the last 30 or 40 years. But, again, there really hasn't been a lot of that information getting out into the public where people could actually use it because, you know, it's in journal articles and nobody reads those. So, so I'd love to write a book to kind of help people to navigate, to understand why the impressions they're making are not necessarily the impressions they want to be making and are not necessarily, you know, don't necessarily reflect who they really are. We make a lot of really reliable mistakes um, 
because we we make assumptions. Um, like I'll give you just a fun example uh, because I just I just think this is wild. Uh, the, for example, if you imagine you're 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 you know get in a job interview, and you say, well, you know, yes, I I I'm uh, here are all my my amazing um, credentials. I went to Harvard. I had this fantastic internship. I graduated at the top of my class. And because you happen to know that the place you're interviewing with has some business and does some uh, business in in Latin America, you you say, oh, and, you know, by the way, I've had two semesters of Spanish. Now, most people will do something like that because they think, well, I just gave them three tens, and, yes, two semesters of Spanish is basically like a two, but I'll just, I'll just throw that in there because, you know, it, every little bit helps. Well, it turns out, actually, that every little bit doesn't help because you're thinking, when you, when you speak that way, you're thinking what we call additively, right? So essentially you're thinking that's a 10, a 10, a 10, and a 2, like that's a 32, right? What actually happens is perceivers on the other end of it don't add. They average. So they just heard a 10, a 10, a 10, and a 2. So now they're going to actually average it. So now your average is an 8, instead of a 10. Like, so in other words, you would have been better off not mentioning that you had had any Spanish because the, it actually diminishes the value of the other things that you just said that were so great. So, so this is one of these funny differences in how people tend to present information one way but actually perceive it in a totally different way. And they're not aware of this difference. So they make a lot of mistakes. It's a really, a really common mistake when they're presenting even a, a product. You know, it turns out that that if you package together, say, you know, an iPod and a really fancy set of, of you know, of, of headphones, and then you say, oh, and you get one free download will come with this, this package. That one free download, because it's worth so little compared to the other items that you're, you're bundling together, actually reduces the perceived value of the bundle. Hmm. than if you had actually just left it out. But, but for some reason, people don't ever realize it when they're on the presenter side. So there's lots of things like that, um, lots of, of really interesting phenomenon where we find that, that either, whether it's in relationships or at work or on the sort of the, the seller-buyer relationships, that people just don't really realize what they're doing isn't working and, and the, why it's not working. So I'd love to write a book that kind of describes, look, this is, these are the rules of actually how, how people really see each other. And then here's what you can do to make sure that you're coming across the way you intend to. And, and that, you know, is not only good for sort of impression management reasons, but it's also good for just having positive relationships and, and strengthening the relationships you have and, 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 you know, getting the most out of them. You know, it's really important, no matter whether it's in work or in the rest of your life, that people, that you're coming across the way you mean to. Um, and so I'd like to kind of help people out with some of that. You know, I'm always the most interested in the areas of psychology where, like I said, our intuitions don't really match up with reality. Motivation is one of those areas, and this is the other big area <laughs> where, yeah. where a lot of times we just don't really know what we're doing. Yeah. No, it, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And, and, I, and I have to say, you, uh, I, I feel like you'd be the right person to write about it because you have so far in the three books done a fantastic job of not only explaining the re this counterintuitive research but also walking people through what does this mean how do you actually apply it uh etc which has been thank you well it's been a lot of fun <laughs> i love what i do i think you know it's sort of like i'm i'm I, I I think it comes across. I just really find this work so exciting and so useful. And and I think, um, you know, for me, one of the most frustrating things when I was just at an academic full time um, was that I was feeling like, well, the, the, this uh, this 
incredible body of information is just not getting out to the hands of people who could actually use it. And so now I get to be a part of, of that, um, which is for me just a really uh, exciting reason to get up every day. Well, the book right the book for right now although we're looking forward to the other one and, and truthfully you should probably pick a, a pick up a copy of nine things too because that's a fascinating awesome read but for now the the book that's hot and the book that is that i really enjoyed is focus use different ways of seeing the world for success and influence heidi thank you so much for joining us inside the thank Lab today. you thank you so much 